Episode 151 of the Bevan James Hour Show, an interview with Dr. Sven Hansen on resilience. Righto, team, welcome along to episode 151 of the Bevan James I'll Show, your fortnightly podcast on the behaviours that create a lifetime love of fitness so you can get all the benefits that come alongside it. Pretty excited about today's show, actually. I, I was at a barbecue a few weeks ago with friends of mine, and one of my, um, well, one of Joel and I's best friends, Jeff and Kate, and I, I was just sitting next to Kate, and she's a teacher at a high school here in Christchurch, and she said to me, oh my God, we just had this amazing guy come and speak to all the students. A guy by the name of Sven Hansen, and it's actually Dr. Sven Hansen, and she said he spoke about resilience, and she just spoke so highly of him, you know, and um, she said how they, he really connected with the kids. And I've done a lot of speaking and stuff over the years, and to me, one of the hardest crowd is, is the kind of the, the teenage crowd, because often, you know, what teenagers are like, they don't necessarily want to hear, um, they may be they may be a bit resistant, uh, they kind of have to be there, and so that's kind of one of the things they're resisting. But she just said that he had this amazing ability to connect with uh, the crowd. So I said to her, and she said, oh, you need to get him on your podcast. And I said, well, what's his name? What's his website? And I'll see what I can do. And I managed to get hold of Sven, and uh, I've got him on the show today. And I've actually already done the interview, and uh yeah, some really good stuff in there. So I'm actually not going to spend much time talking before the interview today. I'm just pretty much going to get through the patrons and then we'll get into the interview. So let's name a few of the patrons of the show. And these include, who have I got here? I've got Denise Dana, Ab Fab. We've got Nathan. Nathan, I don't know your last name. Let me know your last name because you are the hurricane. We've got Mary Jane, the magic Mariko. We've got Katrina, the architect. And like Nathan, we only have your first name. We've got Kim... Surging further, and uh, Anderson Headley, and then we've got Lana, Queen of Change, Kingy, and we've got Wendy, the rock star Schaefer. These people all support this show by just donating a little bit of money each time I release a show. And if you want to become a patron, go to bevanjamesisles.com, and you'll see a little Patreon link there. Click on that, go through the process, and basically every time I release a show, you donate a little bit to support what I'm doing here on this show. And if you do appreciate my work, it does really help. So just to all the patrons, thank you very much. And also you get a cool nickname when you become a patron. Anyway, I'm going to get straight into the interview with Sven. Here is Dr. Sven Henson on Resilience. Okay, team, I'm very happy to have Sven Hansen on the show today. He's a, he's a global man, is what he told me before. He's lived all around the world in his time, but he also has a, a website called resilienceeye.com, and he is, the Resilience Institute is his big thing, and we'll get him to tell us all about this. Just welcome to the show. Thank you, Bevan. Delighted so, to be here. Maybe um, you could just start with giving a bit of a history on yourself. Yeah, short story. Um, European family, grew up in Cape Town, uh, blessed, very academic family. I was a little bit of an experimental child. So, my, you know, my dad was very into the um, medical elements of well-being way before his time. My mum was a psychiatric social worker. So you kind of got to understand my life was interesting. Up at four, barefoot runs, cold swims, broccoli for breakfast, <laughs> and then a smidgen of psychotherapy before school. <laughs> 
so uh, yeah, you know, it was an interesting uh, environment to to be in. And I um, finished school, was a little confused, went off to the states. I loved skiing, but realized the Americans were were a very different lot. So when I came back, I joined the army and uh, ended up in a stint in special forces, which was really for me um, unbelievable good foundation training. And then I did the medical thing, finished that, came out to New Zealand in 1986, uh, worked in sports medicine after my hospital years, and then started to ask the question, so what if we took all the stuff we're learning about the bodies, the emotions, the mind of athletes, and applied it to people like us who work for a living? And started to experiment with that, I suppose, in the early 90s. And to, to be honest, in those days, it was very difficult. I was probably a little ahead of the, the curve and paid a price for that. Um, and we ended up in um, Auckland. And um, you know, maybe since uh, it was 2002, we set up the business formally. And quite quickly, we got going in New Zealand and Australia. It took another eight years to get going in Europe and Southeast Asia. And uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a good fun little business. We're having a lot of fun now. So so when you started it out, um, so you're kind of saying that uh, you wanted to move more into this what you're doing now. At that time, it was kind of a new world, and obviously you're kind of a bit ahead of the game. But what were you hoping to create when you first started out? Yeah, so very early on, you know, I I kind of realised that, and it was a very personal decision. Curative medicine was not for me. You know, much as I actually was reasonably good at surgery and diagnostics, I, I really had a deep philosophical belief that we should be using the science of medicine to help prevent disease. Mm. So the question was, I guess, when I saw what you could achieve with motivated athletes and coaches, you know, how do you get to more people? And business to me was, frankly, the way to get to more people. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it sort of worked eventually. It was just very difficult in the beginning. But what were some of the, like, I know we'll talk a little bit about some of the, the things that the listener can kind of apply to their life moving forward, but what were some of the challenges for you at that moment? Personally? Yeah. Yeah, I was a lucky young guy at that time, I suppose. Uh, I mean, I had not very much money. I spent everything I had on sport and outdoors, which uh, Christchurch was very generous with. Um, I mean, I think, you know, maybe the one thing, and it, 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 it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because New Zealand is small, mm-hmm. so you're not surrounded with um, with experts like you would be in, say, Silicon Valley. So it was lonely. Okay. You know, I had to read a lot. I had to travel a lot to get my information to validate ideas. Having said that, you know, the power of doing something in New Zealand is you really learn to be a bit of a generalist and you have to end up being commercial pretty quickly, otherwise you don't survive. Mm. So I didn't have the luxury ever of working in a silo. Um, but I think, you know, that that's something that many New Zealand entrepreneurs and managers really benefit, benefit from is we have that ability to see the bigger picture. Mm. If you go into a U.S. business, you know, you are the expert in X and don't get too cl- close to Y or Z. Mm. It's, 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 yeah, and that's limiting. Mm. So, you know, double-edged sword, but I think in the long run, for me, it's a great thing. Mm. 
So, so, so how do you define resilience? What, what is resilience if, if we go back yeah. to basics? Super important to, to do that because right at the moment there are an awful lot of people uh, touting resilience. Many of them do not have a formal background in it. And of course, it's such a vast topic. It's really easy to get confused. I'm not suggesting we're right, right? But our working definition is that for someone to be resilient, they need to demonstrate a few things. Number one, an ability to bounce. Number two, an ability to grow. You know, to understand that actually humans are not fixed in concrete. We're unbelievably plastic. Right from a muscle to one of those magical brain cells in your prefrontal cortex, all of human nature is growable, physically, emotionally, mentally. And to just let ourselves decline is, to me, the tragedy of humanity. Whereas, you know, if we can just encourage people to be a little more optimistic and a little bit more effortful, perhaps, it's life-changing. And uh, that's a key part, I guess, and that's been in the literature since the 60s and 70s. Our third criteria is to connect. Because at the end of the day, you can be Mr. Superperson, but you know what, if you do not feel connected to people, it's a desperate situation. We are social. And this is one of the dangers of our, you know, very digital lives is that we're trading true FaceTime for digital time. And the evidence on that is pretty frightening. Mm -hmm. So we will not get rid of devices. We need to use them smartly. So the question in Connect is how do we help people to be very, very good in making connections, making authentic connections, learning to have honest conversations, maybe even fierce conversations, but still not losing the care, the kindness, the goodness. Then the fourth one is what we call flow. And at the end of the day, you know, for most of our teams around the world, that's, that's the why, because there is this state that humans can learn to experience where you can be five times more productive and a team can be at least double as innovative and productive and that's called flow. And you can't do flow all the time, but you know, if you could spend an hour or two in flow in each of your working days, that would be a huge, huge, huge upside. Mm. What are some of the things that work against resilience? Probably in a few angles. Um, you know, one of the things that we're wrestling with, particularly at this time in, in humanity, is that in the old days, life kept you fit. If you didn't jump out of bed with dawn, something snacked on you. You know, if you didn't race the monkeys to the trees, you went hungry. You know, so you were climbing, you were running, you were sleeping long nights, you were waking up with the blue dawn. You had to collaborate with your fellow members of the tribe, otherwise humans couldn't make it. So in many ways, think of us as, as creatures that came from quite a dynamic, challenging, physical, emotional environment and a problem-solving environment. No, we don't have that, right? I can wake up whenever I like. I don't need to go to sleep at night because I've got bright lights and all kinds of devices to keep me going. I don't have to exercise and just get in my car, you know, or my scooter or whatever it is. Mm. Um, you know, I, I don't really need to spend time with you. I could just Google away mm. and live in a virtual imagined world. So we're in that really interesting situation where we where um, resilience is not enforced by a tough natural environment. It becomes a choice. 
and we're we're in a world with many, many, many difficult choices. You know, shall I walk to work or shall I get the bus? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you get on the bus, you've just made a decision. It's maybe good for the planet in some ways, but it's maybe not as good as walking. And I guess in a modern world, you take simple things like that, having a really honest, fierce conversation, it's very challenging, right? It demands courage. Maybe easier for me just to give you a little white lie. Right? So I think what we're facing now is a situation of choice, which is a wonderful luxury and freedom we have in our modern age. Making wise choices is getting a little complicated. Mm. I, I remember um, there's a history podcast I listened to, and he, and he, and he talks about how the generation that came after the war or the generation that was in the Second World War, how they, if, if it came down to just the, the battle, you know, if, if we could fight them without technology, they would just destroy us because they're so resilient because of the, the cause of that time. That time, you know, there was, there was no resources, there was no money. You know, that, mm-hmm. that generation had to be so resilient because life forced them into it. And as you're saying there, the situation we have now is, Life is making it so much easier for us to be kind of inactive and lazy in both physical, mental, yeah. and social. Yes, um, and exactly. so we're, we've got this kind of big machine working against us and, and, and developing our resilience, I suppose. Yeah. Isn't it such an interesting challenge? You yeah, know? It and, really is. and then it, 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 it gives us kind of, uh, and this is you know, a, a huge concern at Davos's meetings in the last mm-hmm. five years. This choice presents a really difficult issue because you can see how some people and you know your listeners are probably right into this right they know all kinds of things they're making wiser choices you know maybe 50 100 200 times a day some people just are not quite there yet well, so yeah, the marketing like, is beating them oh, and, also, and they're like, making their choices oh sorry but was, um, i remember like i remember a few years ago um I, I didn't have a TV for years. I didn't have, and, um, and I remember one day we went to a friend's house and we just spent the night there. And, we, and it was the first time I'd seen a recordable box, you know, where you record, you know. And I realized after about four hours, we just sat down because there weren't ads. We didn't stand up, you know. And the thing is, is that a lot of people, these things get included into their life, but they're not conscious of it. You know, and and so they're not really aware of the kind of the stepping back that they're taking and how to live with a resilience life, aren't they? Absolutely. You know, my, one of my favorite mentors, Dr. Merv Dickinson, who's actually still alive and well in Christchurch, uh, he always said to me, life is a conspiracy to put you to sleep. Ah, nice. Yeah, it's, it's, and it's so true, isn't it? You know, because, and this is the problem, you know, if you're aware, you can make wise choices. If you're not aware, you will end up being defaulted into the bad choices. So, of course, what we're seeing now is 1% part of the population is really reaping the benefits of resilience. They got it, you know, they got their physical well-being sorted, taking time to relax, meditating. They're into emotional intelligence. They're learning about the brain and how to train the brain, and they're reaping the rewards. And then on the other side, we've got people who are just making terrible choices about their physical well-being, awful decisions in how they relate to people or not. And so, so your organization is there to bring resilience into people's lives when you when you first get introduced to because i imagine you mainly work for organizations i'm sure individuals as well how much resistance do you experience to be honest in the early days a lot i mean people just could not even conceive of why it was relevant okay it's very different today so you know our, our problem is actually 
working out who to work with because many, many employers are really conscious of the costs of all kinds of things. You know, people might not be well, they might have absenteeism issues, emotional issues, which causes tremendous damage in the high-performing teams. Um, you know, you think about the sleep issues. Um, it's, uh, it's a pressing need for many employers. So, no, I think the answer is it's not difficult. You know, our, our challenge is, is how to serve our clients with the right solution. That's difficult. Mm. Before we go into kind of some of those solutions, uh, the question I have is how do you feel we can, you know, you're saying that there's this kind of aspect of society who gets it and are aligned with it and are kind of doing the work and getting the benefits and then there's this kind of the sleeping other side who, you know, not because the you know bad people they just maybe don't have the un- introduction to it or really understand it mm, has it come uh, yet yeah how do you see it as a community as a society that we can open you know because one thing i often talk about is you know when we look at society's problems it's often just we have broken people you know what i mean and and, and i always think that maybe as a society the two questions we need to explore is how do we create less broken people and how do we look after those mm-hmm. who are broken so they become mm-hmm. less broken um and so and i don't think pointing the finger down is the answer i don't think that you know i think this is an answer Agree. we need to kind of work together towards so how do you see a future where it wouldn't just be a one percent thing where it would be a um a mess you know this is the norm i suppose is what i'm looking for here well, so, you know, I, I'm uh, not just a possibilist on this. I'm an optimist. It's happening really fast. I think it's incredibly exciting. Okay. You know, so there are a couple of things happening. One is that education and knowledge is just so easily distributed. Mm. And, you know, as you say, it's very easy and it's a natural human thing to do, point the finger down and say, they. Yeah. That's a really clueless response to, <laughs> to the reality, it? right? Yeah. The they are actively learning about this stuff. You know, whether you go to, you know, and, and I have direct experience of this in the last couple of months, a mother in Malawi or a mother parent in, in South Auckland, they are actively focused on how do they feed their kids well? How do they take care of their kids? How do they get their kids well educated? It's a massive groundswell. And I guess as the internet brings more of this knowledge to people, you know, look at what you and I are doing right at the moment, yeah. hopefully some people get something, mm. right? And it catalyzes a bit of a journey. Um, we also have, you know, these apps, you know, right around the world, one thing just about everybody has now is a smartphone of some sort. And yeah, so I think, I think we're sitting at a really wonderful threshold. Now, I'm not saying it won't be difficult to change bad habits, right? Anyone who's been trapped by whatever bad habits knows what a challenge it is. But I do think the knowledge, the motivation, the groundswell, it's it's becoming very widespread. Mm. So can you talk us through your, your resilience spiral? Can you tell us a bit about what that is and how that, that kind of works and maybe just give us a bit more depth on that? It's a, it's a model that you guys obviously use to develop mm-hmm. resilience. You just want to talk about it so people can get an understanding of it. Yeah, so history was, you know, when I was sitting in the years of of being an executive health doctor, and in medicine they teach you that you're normal or you're sick, you've got a diagnosis. And I guess as I had more time to understand people who were mostly highly functional, what I understood is that between normal and, say, depression, there were some stages. And you don't go normal depressed. 
Yeah. Very red, right? It may yeah. be something bad happens in your life, but you bounce back from that generally quite quickly. Um, there was this process. So in a nutshell, what, what you know, the, the spiral tries to just remind us that we have an altitude. Sometimes we wake up and we feel fantastic. The sun is shining, you feel full of energy, life's a blast, let me rock. Yeah. The other days you wake up and you just want to jam the pillow over your head. You feel like death warmed up. The last thing you want to do is go and deal with the dramas that face you. That's altitude. So our spiral was to try and help people have a, have a much more precise view of their altitude. You know, working, so right at the bottom we talk about depression and being really truly disabled, and that could be heart attacks, it could be immune failure, the number of ways to do it. Depression is the one that's most common at the moment. But distress, you know, for example, I'm in the traffic, someone stops prematurely at a light, I have to jam, the light's still orange, I'm kind of thinking, you know, who is this person? And I have a flush of distress, of high blood pressure, of an accelerated heart rate, my face gets angry. Do I even notice that? Most people don't. Mm. So you can work up that spiral, you know, and as we move into the top side, our kind of view is if the goal is flow, to wake up and say, this is a good thing to do. I'm blessed to be able to do it, and I'm going to do it well. That's kind of a flow day. To do that, you first need to be calm, steady, present. Two, you need to have had a good night's sleep. You need to be physically fit. You need to eat decently. Three, you need to understand your emotions. You've got to be able to control your emotions, and you've got to be able to dial into other people's emotions. And only then do we really have the freedom to use this wonderful mind properly. Because if that anger in the traffic captures my mind, I have very little choice. What do I do? I wag my finger, I fly the bird, I swear, you know, I beat my wheel. I mean, how futile. So it's, you know, usually it's the physical and the emotional things that unravel our minds. If we can get that right, the freedom to see what's actually going on, to choose what you're going to do in situations. You know, that's your doorway to flow. So we kind of suggest, you know, life is, of course, and, and many people listening, I imagine, would think, well, wow, sometimes I'm at the top, sometimes at the bottom. True. Some people vary the altitude regularly and sometimes quite violently. So, for example, in bipolar disorder, you go from a manic high altitude state, super confident, super energized, full of the joys. And then next day, you crash. And some of the most creative work done by some of the great inventors and scientists and musicians of our time has been when they're coming up that spiral. You know, that's when your creative ideas consolidate. Yeah, so that's what it is. You know, question one, where am I? Question two, can I get where I need to be? Question three, where are you today? You know, and how, how do I learn from being with you, how you're traveling? And three, can we work together to, to lift the game a bit? And, and ultimately, I suppose, in the long term, it's to be consistently at the higher level, isn't it? Yes and no. Okay, tell me more. Um, there are some people who are very steady and really positive and just have the joys of life. So when they talk about people like Matthew Ricard and the Dalai Lama, these guys are super happy. Nelson yeah. Mandela is another example. Uh, they just radiate joy. That takes a lot of hard work. And I think the reality of life for most of us is that sometimes we hit that joy. Yeah. 
But sometimes bad things happen. You know, sometimes you look at the suffering around us and it really hurts, right? Or you look at your kids, you know, and you look at the world and some of the challenges we're facing, it hurts. So I wouldn't want to suggest that we should always be at the top of the pile. I think to be able to suffer, to feel, to be compassionate is very important. And hence, the whole of the spiral is necessary. You know, as in the Buddhist literature, they talk about the four noble truths. And right at the beginning of that is to know suffering. Because if you don't know suffering, you can be unwise as you fly around. There's a recent movie uh, about this called Fire, F-Y-R-E. Have you seen that? Is it the one about the, the festival? Yeah, I did watch that, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So there's a good example of you know people playing at the top end. Enron is another more business example yeah. of getting carried away with being too high and not pausing to think of the costs, the consequences, how people might suffer. Mm. Yeah, so I think it's a whole experience. Mm. And I think, you know, sometimes uh, it's actually good to be able to wake up and say, you know what, I feel absolutely miserable today. Mm. Mm. But you know what, I could do something about it. And that, but that's the key, isn't yeah. it? Because is, is, is you don't have to be debilitated by it. Like, for example, um, I have a business, a running business, and um, we have this funny business model, which means basically every eight weeks we have four days of high stress. <laughs> and, you, and you kind of... Uh, you know, you kind of get to this moment where you kind of think the world's going to end, and, and it never does. We've been doing it for ten years, it's, you, and you know you're being irrational, um, but you're still going through the emotion of it. Um, and the thing for my wife and I that we always are glad we have is that that time takes us to action, so we don't get debilitated, we don't get frozen. It's like, okay, well, how do we work through this, and, and practically and emotionally, and uh, that's the thing that kind of point you make there is that. It, because I'm in this place doesn't mean it's a stamp in time that I have to sit and it, I can work through exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that was one of the great lessons of my time in Special Forces is you learn to ride the waves mm. and you know there's always a way out. You never, ever, ever uh, give up. You never blame someone else. You, you own the situation and you set about trying to fix it. Mm. So, it's very good. They drill that into you, you know, over and over and over again for months until you – you start to begin to believe you can do it. Well, you're right. I remember when I did Ironman triathlon for years, and I remember a mate of mine said to me, "You can always give up later on in the day, you know." And, and but by that time, you never you, you didn't need to give up. You know, you'd, you'd work through that moment, hadn't you? Yeah, it's a good biohack. Yeah, it? yeah, it really is. Give up, give up in two hours, and it's like two hours later, you're like I'm feeling great. Yeah. Um, so okay, so someone who's listening to this who maybe feels they don't have resilience and a lot of people do you know a lot of people like I remember when I did Ironman I, people always saw me as mentally hard and, and I'd always get the question of do you think it's something you're born with or do you think it's something you developed now I, I knew it was something I developed but um, you know I think a lot of people just think oh that person has it so for those people who don't feel they have resilience what are some of the and I know you've got lots of tools but maybe what are a couple of tools that can really help them work towards developing better resilience in their life Excellent question. Uh, first uh, is, is a deep inner belief that you, you do have resilience. There is no human being, even those of us who are born with, with really tragic genetic issues, you are born with resilience. Biological nature is to bounce. Everything that lives bounces. It it's, grows. It's, it's, when you, I, I think I know what you mean to say bounce, but bounce is what? 
Bounce is that ability to acknowledge the suffering and to quickly okay. bring yourself back up. Okay, great. Yep. All right. Cool. Uh, so, look, I think we are, by our very biological nature, we are built for resilience. Mm. And if you believe that, you're already well on your road. You know, how you step practically is complicated. And I think it's very important to say there are many, many paths. But, you know, if, if I were to sort of say a, a general practical path that's going to sort things for most people, step one, lock your sleep down. Make sure you're getting that seven to eight hours at the right time through the night and the right quality. You know, there is more than enough evidence showing how lack of sleep or disrupted sleep or um, irregular sleep is um, shattering humanity. Mm. And the problem with sleep is that in the past, we never had too little. Whereas thirst is very resilient in the human body. Uh, sleep is not. We don't even know when we sleep deprived. So fix sleep, number one. Uh, number two, move. You know, the entire human being is, as you know, made to move. Mm -hmm. So in, in some ways you can think of your brain and your emotions. They actually uh, are serving a moving body mm -hmm. at the end of the day. So that, um, you know, building movement into every single day is step two. I would love to think that included aerobics and flexibility, yeah. some strength and balance, but just yes. move, just move, just yeah. move right? Yeah. Uh, three um, is, is to learn a, we use the term tactical calm, all right? So apart from a few really exceptional people, meditation or mindfulness is, is bewilderingly difficult. Mm. So learning how to quickly calm yourself in that moment in the traffic, for example, to know how to adjust your posture, how to exhale, how to to be able to, um, we talk about this vagal nerve, you know, something the yogis and the Navy SEALs and the All Blacks have in common. They are able to quickly slow their heart rate and get into heart rate variability. Literally, in a moment, on a decision, on a breath. That's That's got to be so. So the sleep, the movement, the tactical calm. Now, I think nutrition is important, but it may not be as important as we think compared to some of the other ones. So I'd probably go for number four would be to start calling your emotions. When you feel sad, say, ah, I'm sad. Name it and then own it. I feel sad. And then resolve to move to a better place. Emotional resilience, flexibility, bounce, whatever you, regulation, whatever you want to call it, is, is, is a transformer. But you have to be able to name it. All right, so take Why? Why, why is that so important? For a, a simple reason, uh, and that is that when you consciously name an emotion, you, um, you switch the function of the brain from the amygdala, which feels sad or frightened or angry, into the frontal cortex, which says, oh, I am feeling sad. The amygdala just says, everything is sad. Okay. And I'm part of the sadness. 
Whereas once you get to the front of your brain, you name it, you've created a subject and an object. You know, at the lower part of consciousness, you just are your sadness or you mm. are your anger. You can't distinguish. Mm. I think the, uh, you know, the incredible power of naming it is now I can look at something and I can evaluate it and I can potentially change it. So it gives you the ability to be able to process the sadness. Whereas before that moment, if you don't put the identification on yourself and the object, yeah. it's kind of, it just is. Yeah. Okay. And you're stuck. So as soon as you can name your emotions, you can move. Okay. Remember, e movare, to move, or e, motion, motion. Yeah. So if we can find the right emotion, we can move where we need to move. Mm. Five, in today's world, we are so, so hypervigilant. You know, the average young person, our generation, are switching attention every 18 seconds. Wow. We've kind of lost our minds. So five would be to help yourself see when you're thinking and to say, hang on, am I present? It's really easy, you know, I'm aware of the noise outside. So I get thinking on that noise and what am I going to do about that noise? But I lose my presence to you. Mm. So to be able to notice that thinking and say, ah, not now, be here. No, here, here, with Ben, with Ben. Now, you know, you think about how this disturbs people at night how it disturbs people in social occasions. It's this endless noise in our minds. So finding simple ways to keep your mind quiet and present would be number five. That would be a start. Yeah, pretty good five. Um, what do you, when, you, when, when you work with somebody and they, they do this kind of work and they get to the other side, what are some of the benefits? What do, what do, what do you hear from those who have made the progress about the progress they have made? Yeah, so the beauty of, of, of people is we're so different. And people find so many different ways to find their way out. Let me take a couple uh, that are, are, are kind of fun to, to appreciate with people who get the wins. A really common one is people get their sleep sorted. They rave about it. All right, the first thing they rave about is the energy. For the first time in their lives, they actually feel alive for the whole day. Second thing they'll say is, you know what, I can't believe it, but when I put my head in the pillow now, I'm just gone. That's a big one. And a lot of people get that. Um, breathing, you know, using that tactical calm idea, that is a game changer. And I guess people you know a lot of the anxiety and so on disappears. So people really rave about that, particularly in social situations, because it is those social situations that often make us uh, anxious. Um, you know, some of the special ones, you know, I've met with someone who had lost 18 kilograms two weeks ago wow. through a very deliberate program of taking care of his eating, taking care of his exercise, having a coach, working with his wife. That's a big job. But the pride and the fulfillment that someone who achieves that kind of change, uh, it's, it's immense. Yeah, and the shift in identity as well, wasn't it? Oh, uh, yeah, because we are very physical, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's totally. you know, it, beginning. Yeah. yeah, you know, that kind of, there's so much value of that journey, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, the, the, the other ones that are lovely, I mean, I think to, to actually start to, 
dial into your emotions. It really makes life so much richer. And it actually, at the end of the day, it also gives you a lot of control where you can say, oh, that was a bit of sadness, but I'm over it now. Yeah. Or, yeah pretty angry, but I said, I was sorry. We've moved on. So, you know, as you bring that emotional intelligence into the game, your life changes at a very profound way. You know, you start connecting better. You enjoy people more. Those are big pluses. You stop doing so much collateral damage. You know, yeah, well, that's the thing. Is I often for I often think that for a lot of people, their emotional time, at least challenging emotional times, just creates more damage in their life. But when you can develop really great tools around dealing with emotion, it actually becomes an esteem point. Um, it's something that you're really proud of. It's not that you didn't feel sad, or it's not that you weren't angry. It's, it's but I'm really proud of how I responded to those things. And so you, there's this kind of inner sense of self that's really strong. You know, there's lots of the early research in resilience which goes way back to the 40s and 50s, uh, showed very clearly that um, it was those harsh, adverse emotional events that helped us build resilience. Okay. And we look at people who've been very successful, they've often found a way to negotiate and do exactly as you said, you know, to turn what could be a critical post-traumatic stress event into a growth event. It's an interesting idea, you know, medicos love to use this language of post-traumatic stress disorder. What about post-traumatic growth disorder? Mm. Because, you know, at the end of the day, most people who go through difficult times actually get stronger. They become wiser. Mm. You know, we kind of teasingly on people, I mean, it's a little harsh, but, you know, in some ways, I think it's a very good thing to go down that dark side of the spiral and to really hit the bottom. Mm. It will make you wiser than almost any other experience. And once you know what it's like and you've worked your way back up, you will be so confident. The next time it happens, you'll catch it much earlier mm. and your bounce will be much faster. Mm. Yeah. Well, that was my journey. I, I was the total dropkick and there was I did hit the bottom. And, um, really? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And um, and that was my journey. And um, I was. And in some ways, you look at some people who you kind of think you just need to go a little bit lower. <laughs> you know, you need to crash a little bit lower because you're you're kind of a little bit too comfortable where you are. But if you go a bit lower, yes. you, you might hit yes. that point. Yes. And then you'll you'll you will transform. You know, like it's you know. You yeah, know. and you get to this point. You know, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. This is just too hard. It's just. You know. This is just pointless. Yeah, totally. And it, and it's often big shifts happen in that moment, don't they? Yeah, yeah. And they really can. Yeah. Yeah, so those are, I guess, some of the, the changes. Um, you know, I often think that, you know, sometimes the sort of being able to bounce, being able to take care of your body, stay fit and calm, that's hygiene. You know, the real game is when you can live with your emotions and your mind and flow being a part of every day. You know, that that's a blast, right? Well, and, you know, when we think about the kind of reward of that, you know, like the benefit of flow is you, you – you know, I remember, did you watch the Richie McCaw documentary? Um, yeah, and I, I never, I never really enjoyed Richie McCaw. Like I thought he was an amazing athlete, but I always mm. found him quite a boring person. Um, and it's probably just his public persona. I'm, I've never met the guy, so I can't judge. So I wasn't that interested in watching it, but I didn't really enjoy the documentary because that fact of you want the challenge because it's the, the moment to, to express the true self at its highest level. You know, and ultimately that's how he saw a challenge is that I want to go into the hardest challenge because this is a chance to express myself. And, you know, and that's ultimately flow state, isn't it? You know, and it's this yeah. whole idea of when you can get to a place where you know how to manage resilience, 
you actually seek resilience because it is a, a deeper, higher state, isn't it? Yeah. Not just that, you seek adversity. Mm. You know, that's one of the beautiful things is, you know, as you become more resilient, you, you pick up more meaningful challenges. And they make you more resilient again. And this is part of what we were saying earlier is, is, you know, it just makes you a more stronger, better connected person. Whereas someone who's not on the resilience journey has a negative reinforcing cycle. Mm. You know, they're avoiding opportunities to grow. As a consequence, they don't grow. They yeah. become complacent or overcautious or anxious. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, and I had a great example of that. I was speaking to a lady recently who wanted to do the park run, which is like a local run. <laughs> um, but she was so scared about failing. Um, she never tried. And, and I just said, well, why don't you look at it as I want to grow? You know, this is a chance for me to grow. And then so she went along, she walked it, and now she's being successful. And it's, you know, it's, it is that approach we bring to it, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. That's the virtuous spiral. And she's come out of that whole experience a whole lot stronger, a yeah. lot more curious. And, and open to more possibility as well. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Can I ask a question I love asking people like yourself, and I'm in this situation, we're very fortunate that people come to us to help guide them, you know, and yeah. through your business and through what you do. I mean, sometimes I think for people like us, people think we've got it all together. So I think it's always really important to show some of our struggles. So maybe what are some of the areas that you have to work on with this stuff and, and your growth and your evolution? Neat question. Yeah. Neat question. You know, I mean, you know, I, I, forgive me for being a little philosophical first, but I think it's really important to understand that resilience is not perfection. Mm. You know, resilience is to be able to handle the gnarly bits of life, not to be perfect. You know, we all make mistakes. And of course, the more of those challenges we talked about just a moment ago become more difficult, your risk of failure increases. Yeah. So... I think that that humanity that, uh, you know, Breen Brown calls it vulnerability. I think it's just a, a willingness to be able to fail in order to grow. That needs to be in your mindset, right? So you can't have a great life unless you're willing to take some knocks. Yeah. So we all take knocks. Uh, you know, I, I'll be honest, uh, you know, it, it's uh, I've had to learn to deal with it, but you know, if, if, if you were to assess me on that sort of social spectrum autism disorder, that social intelligence is very hard for me. Okay. I'll be honest with you, I was clueless, right? I didn't even know how much damage I did in the first really? 40 years of my life. No, I, I was dialed out. You know, I was super motivated. I was um, wanted to do good things. I was doing good things. But my emotional subtlety, subtleties were terribly blunted. And I had no insight. Okay. And, uh, you know, back when I went off and did an emotional intelligence course in the 90s, it was like someone just opened this huge room in my brain that I completely <laughs> ignored. <laughs> well, it's, like oh, really? color, it's like seeing a color you've never seen before, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. It, it was so exciting and so bewildering. And I guess, you know, that was an interesting journey. I, I And I'm lucky to have a very supportive family and, you know, we can laugh about these things now, and I've learned the skills by being really deliberate about practicing. Mm. Uh, but yeah, you know, and I look back at at uh, at the past, and it's like, oh my gosh, you know, that's, that's embarrassing. So I have to stay alert to that, right? And and I just have to be aware if if I am under too much pressure, you go default. The ways I will show distress is by kind of 
hazing out to other people. Okay. Yeah, so I've got to be really, really alert. To so even though you've developed this in your life, it's still one of those areas where you have to be a bit more conscious because you can go back. 100%. Okay, good. And the day you become arrogant is the day you're going to make a really bad mistake. Yeah, totally. Um, stakes are higher now, you know, you've got a team and you've got leadership issues and kids you can mess up, right? So you really, uh, you have to stay alert to your vulnerabilities. So there was one one challenge. Um, I guess, uh, you know, another piece, I'm not a natural business person, right? I mean, my, my wife is a natural business person. She understands money. Yeah. Uh, I'm passionate I love what I do. You know, yeah. I, I care about it. I love the science. And when I see someone who comes and says, hey, I've lost 18K since I met you last year or, you know, I'm sleeping again, uh, I'm fired up by that much more than making money. Yeah. So, I, you know, if you were a, an accountant, you would have found my journey very hazardous. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure you understand that one, right? Well, I think you're lucky to have your wife. You know, it's it's always my wife and I run a business, and we're very lucky because our skills are so different. But it works well as a team, and sometimes you need that, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So you know, that was always difficult. You know, I always wanted to do things that I couldn't really afford. Yeah, yeah. Hey, um, if people want to follow you or want to work with you, where do they go? How do they get in contact with you? And uh, just anything you want to plug while you're here. <laughs> well, you know, we put the website up as a place where we share a lot of the ideas and a lot of that stuff is free. So we really encourage people to look at that. I do some stuff on LinkedIn. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, as I said in the beginning, this is a movement. Uh, I think more and more people will be doing it in more and more different ways. I think we're only just the very beginning of this really exciting journey. And, you know, it's maybe one thing I didn't uh, say. If you want to be happy, if you want to be fulfilled, to do something good for another human being is the fastest way to a result. Mm. So, you know, when I look at the people who do support us around the world, uh, you know, the teams we use, that joy of serving people and seeing people improve is huge. So, I, you know, I encourage people, you know, even if you don't make this your business, find a way to share these concepts. You never know when you could change a life. Yeah, or right. redirect a young person to to a much better existence. Yeah, that's so true. It's funny. I, I just as you said that, I, I coached. I, I'm coaching a guy who's, who wants to get the police force, and and he didn't feel he was progressing. And yesterday, I took him for a run, and he took a massive amount of time off, and and broke the barriers that he didn't think was possible. And uh, it was awesome. He was so proud of himself. But as you say, like for me, even speaking about now, just you know, it brings so much inner joy, doesn't it? You know, like helping people grow is such a powerful thing to do in life, isn't it? It is. At the end of the day, that's that's the mission. Yeah, totally. It is, isn't it? Yeah. No, because just serving yourself is kind of a diminishing circle, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't really go anywhere. Hey, thank you so much for your time. Um, the website is resilienceeye.com and it's the Resilience Institute. Uh, if you want to go check it out, it's, it's all there and um, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time. Keep doing what you're doing and hopefully maybe we'll get you again thank on you, the show in the future. True pleasure to meet. Awesome. Thank, thank you. you. So there is my interview with Dr. Sven Hansen. Um, 
The Resilience Institute is the name of the company he works for or that he runs. Uh, it's also, I'll put a link to their website, and they work for big organisations. I'm not sure, I didn't actually ask him if he works one-on-one with individuals, but I'm sure there's some capacity to work one-on-one with them. Uh, and their frameworks, they've got some really good readings and some good frameworks on their websites. Uh, so if you want to check that out, make sure you check that out. If you want to become a patron of the show, to go to bevanjamesisles.com. And if you want to email me, you can email me at bevanjames at gmail.com. If you want to spread the word about the show, tell your friends. If this is one of the podcasts you enjoy a lot, one of the things you can do, you can do two things for me. Tell your mates, and maybe go on wherever you review or where you get your podcast from and put a review up about the podcast. It does help to spread the word. Outside of that, it's a beautiful day in Christchurch, and I'm working. And I've been working for the last three beautiful days, but tomorrow's not so busy. And I'm going to take it pretty easy today after this. It's actually two years for my anniversary with my wife. So tonight we're going to go for a dinner. They've got a, an Asian night market happening in Christchurch right now. So I'm going to go teach a fitness class, and then we're going to go for have a lovely dinner and have a romantic time together. Two years. We've been together 11 years, um, and it's pretty cool stuff. So I'm really looking forward to spending a bit of time and love with my wife. So anyway, that's me for this week. I'm going to be back in a couple of weeks' time with a Bevan show, and I'm lining up my next interview for the one after that. And again, I think it's going to be pretty great. So I'll see you guys in a couple of weeks' time, and keep doing what you're doing. My sign-off now is keep being you. See you guys soon.